Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as a church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, have you ever been on a journey, vacation, a, a trip where you're moving from point A to point B, and Either you suggested or someone else suggested, hey, let's just stop off right here for, for a moment. Let's go check out this thing. Let's just, just look at this. I, I heard that we should take a, take a look at it. Um, I was trying to go back in my database of, you know, experiences that I had, trips that we've taken as a family, both when I was a child and then even as I've gotten, gotten older. And, and I think we've all had those experiences where, you know, we stopped off and we're like, ah, you know, that didn't quite pan out or wasn't quite with, worth the stop. And other times we're like, oh, that was well worth it. In fact, without them knowing it, um, when we went on our trip to Israel, I subjected our group to one of those stops. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't know it at the time. Uh, we, were, we were moving our way through Israel, and I was talking with our guide, and, and he said, you know, we're going from here to here. And on our itinerary, it says this, but I'm telling you, I think if we stop, if we don't do this one stop and we go here, I think that that'll be worth it. He's like, the site that I want to go to is a site called Beit Gevrin, and he's like, it's not a... It's not that an overly biblical site doesn't have a lot of historical significance as far as the Bible is concerned, but within Israel and kind of history in general, it's kind of a neat site because there's something that I want you to see. And so I was like, you know what? Let's do it. Let's let you stop. And so we went on the way and we, and we stopped off. And, and sure enough, you know, it was a place that was, um, you know, not really referenced that much in the scriptures, if at all. But what was there was something that was really neat. And actually, when I talked to people afterwards, they said, you know, that was one of the most interesting stops that we did because there at Beit, Beit Gavrin, there was, these, there was this village. And, and what they did was they built underneath the village. They, they dug out, they excavated uh, a, a cave um, system to where literally you had a village on top of a village that was underground. 
And you could go down the steps, and basically what was into these basements, but these basements were connected, and you could walk from basically cave to cave to cave to cave. And, and there were just thousands and thousands of these rooms. We only went into uh, a few of them. The, the last time I had been to Israel, I had never seen this. And then we went this time, and, I, and afterwards I was like, that was pretty cool. I'm glad we stopped and we, we, and we took the time to go there and to look at it and to, and to check it out. Um, if you've ever been on a trip where you've stopped and you've said, you know, why are we stopping here? What are, what are we doing? Uh, sometimes you don't know how it's going to turn out. So I'm taking a risk this morning. <laughs> I'm taking a risk this morning because what I want to do is we've been on this journey through the book of Ephesians and we have been talking with great specificity how in Ephesians chapter 5 it says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. How if you're in Jesus Christ, the old has passed away, the new has come. We are new creations, and now the question becomes for us, how do we live? How do we live as these people who have experienced the grace of God in our lives and have been transformed? We're no longer dead in our sins, but we're alive to Jesus Christ. And so Ephesians chapter 5 is this book where Paul goes, or this chapter where Paul goes into great detail walking us through what it looks like to now live as imitators of God, walking in light, walking in, in love, walking in wisdom. And then he gets really specific here at the end of the chapter and begins addressing the roles that husbands and wives, as those who are in Christ Jesus, what it looks for us to live in those roles as image bearers of God. But in the midst of this discussion, Paul drops something into the text he drops something into the text. He's been talking about the relationships between husbands and wives and the significance of those roles and how we live those roles out. But then in the midst of the text, he drops in this, this comment about Christ and the church and a husband and wife's role and, and, and how that relates to the, the relationship that Christ has with the church. And, and when you pause and you actually stop for a moment and don't just rush through the text, but, but actually say, what is he, what's he saying here? Why does Paul stop and talk about Christ and his relationship to the church, although he's been talking about the relationships between husbands and wives? When you actually stop, when you pause, like we're going to do today, I believe we find some very significant and important things for us as followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, I believe that it's of utmost importance if you proclaim to be a follower of Jesus Christ that we understand what Paul is actually saying here and truth be told, what God is actually saying to us, not just about the role of husbands and wives, but what the role of husbands and wives in their relationship actually tell us about Christ and his church. So we're going to pause. We're not just going to rush into chapter 6 where now he talks about children and parents, although some of you were hoping that that's what today's message was going to be about. We're going to stop and we're going to say, what do you have to say to us here as it talks about husbands and wives, but specifically what that relationship means for Christ and the church? So, so I have a really, really simple aim this morning. My really simple aim is to show you from the Word of God the importance and the value, the significance that God places on this thing we call the church that thing of which we are a part of through Jesus Christ. So you're willing to take a stop with me for a moment? You're willing to sit on this and see what God's Word has to say? Good, you're here, you're stuck. Here we go, all right? So let's go to the text. We're going to come to it. it. It's this little statement. It's nestled in this discussion of, of husbands and wives, but it's right there in verse 31, okay? It starts in verse 31. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
Verse 32, this mystery is profound. What mystery? What are you talking about? And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. See, after discussing the topic of husbands and wives and their roles and responsibilities in marriage, Paul does something here in verse 31. He quotes this Old Testament passage from the book of Genesis uh, that we've considered the last few weeks. This Old Testament passage that talks about what takes place when a man leaves his father and mother and holds fast to his wife. And there's this great, this, this great thing that happens when, when a man and a woman join together in marriage, their two lives come together as what? One. We talked about marriage being this covenant of companionship where you're, you're saying, I am joining my life to, to yours. Now, that's incredible, right? That two people in the eyes of God and then in their own eyes should view themselves no longer as two separate entities, but to view themselves as, no, we are connected to one another. But what does Paul do in the text? Well, well that's, that's an amazing thing to comprehend. That idea of two people coming together as one. Look at what Paul says in verse 32. This mystery is profound. What is the mystery that's profound? And by the way, the word mystery, as Paul uses it there, is not this thing that is hidden and can't be, un, you know, it's unknowable. No, mystery as it was used back then in Paul's day was something that had been hidden but is now revealed. So Paul, what was hidden that is now revealed? What's the thing that we can now understand that we couldn't understand before? And he says, I'm referring to Christ and the church. What Paul does with this one simple verse is he is saying to us, you know that Old Testament passage about the two becoming one flesh and how you've all thought about for all of history that that's just a passage that pertains to marriage? He says that passage isn't just about marriage. That passage isn't just about a husband and wife joining together as one. What Paul is saying here, and this is the first point in your notes, is that God created marriage to help illustrate the relationship that Jesus Christ has with the church. The profound mystery that's now revealed is the fact that Christ Jesus and the people of God are joined together as one. And that all of human history and all the marriages that came before it and all the marriages that came after it, God created marriage as a means of illustrating to us this miraculous thing that would happen when Jesus Christ would redeem a people lost and join them to himself. Did you know that, yes, Marriage was given by God to help two individuals grow in Christ's likeness. Marriage was given by God as the context in which we would be fruitful and multiply. But what Paul says here, what God says here is something so incredibly profound. It's telling us that part of the reason for the creation of marriage was so that one day we would have an idea of the relationship that we now have with Jesus Christ. Now, you know why we can say this? Well, because the text says it. He says, this is the mystery that's profound. It's that marriage, earthly marriage between a husband and a wife, was created by God as a way of helping us understand the kind of relationship that Jesus Christ has with his church. 
You see, if you were with us from the beginning of our study in the book of Ephesians, you know that before the world was actually created, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had already the plan to redeem the creation that would be created and one day rebel against us or be against Him. We see this back in Ephesians chapter chapter 1. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. In love, He did all of this, adopting us to be a part of His family. Church, what you have to understand is God knew all along and had set in motion a plan to redeem fallen creation. And when you come to this passage, what it's telling us is, did you not know (laughs) that since God is the creator of everything, and because before the world was created, he knew what would be necessary to redeem us, part of the reason why he created marriage and the union of a man joining to a wife and becoming one was so that one day we would be able to get our minds around and comprehend the kind of relationship that he has with us. Do you remember how we said a few weeks ago, marriage is not a man-made institution, but it is a God-created and established one? Remember how we said that? See, God created it and established it because God had some other things in plan. Planned. What he had planned was this that the church too was be created and established by God. Like this is when you see this passage and you see what he's saying here, he's saying, do you know how important, do you know how significant the church of God is? Is that marriage was made to help us understand the church, not the other way around. You see, back in our passage, it says this in verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the what? Head of the church. He says, don't you understand? See, see, husband, all you're doing in your role is modeling Christ's relationship to the church, which is why it's so important that husbands are to love in the way they're supposed to love. And wives, as you submit to your, to your husbands, as you come underneath their, their leadership, as you follow support and encourage them in that, like all of this is part of God's design because God is trying to paint a picture for us of the kind of relationship that he has with the church. And so when we come to a passage like this, I just want to give us a little bit of background on a couple of things. Like whatever you think about the church, you have to know that it wasn't something that a pope came up with and established some thousands of years ago. It's something that has been in the mind of God and that even before the creation of the world, look at when God created marriage, he didn't later on go, hey, you know what's a great illustration of my relationship with, with my people? Marriage. No. He was like, marriage is going to be one of the ways that I'm going to help my people understand my relationship with them. And so the church was created and established by God. And I want to show you a passage that we looked at, but it was so long ago, you probably forgot. It's in Ephesians chapter 3. Look at verse 8. It says this, Paul says, To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, the grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone 
What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? What's the plan of the mystery hidden for ages that's now been revealed? So that through the what? Church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The church was created and established by God. It was always in his mind. All of human history was moving towards his relationship with the church. And what this text tells us is that the creation of the church was the means by which God was like, you want to know how great I am? You want to see my manifold wisdom? Like, here's the deal. None of us has manifold wisdom. That's like wisdom on top of wisdom. It, it's, it's a wisdom beyond all other wisdoms. He's like, you want to see how great I am? Take a look at what I did in the creation of the church. Take a look at my relationship with the church. You want to know the kind of God I am? Look no further than the church. It was not an afterthought in God's mind. In fact, Paul got this idea about the greatness of God's plan revealed in the church from Jesus himself. In Matthew 16, 18, we read these words. Christ, when he's speaking to his disciples and speaking to Peter, he says, I will build my, what, church. Who makes the church? Who establishes a church? Who creates the church? Jesus Christ, I will build my church. And then these beautiful words, and the gates of hell shall not prevail, what, against God always knew of his plan to redeem a lost people and join them to himself as a means of revealing his glory in the world and conquering the forces of darkness. Because some people get that Matthew passage wrong, right? And I say this every time I come to it. The gates of hell are the gates of hell. Uh, I have the, uh, <laughs> in our home, our, our driveway, we have a, we have a gate Yes, to keep dogs from getting out and, and children, but also to not let people come in that we don't want, right? So we have the Wajnikis have a gate, right? But it's, but it's our gate. When it says that, it, that the gates of hell won't prevail against the church, what it's saying is the, the gates that hell has to try and keep the people of God out, to, to exercise its power, they won't prevail because the onslaught of this thing called the church will knock them down. And so the forces and the powers of darkness will not prevail against the people of God. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. Let me say it one more time. The power of hell cannot prevail against the power of God's people. And, and, and like, we have to live in that truth. So should we be fearful of the evil that exists in the world? Oh, let me try that one, one more time. <laughs> Should we be fearful of the evil that exists in the world? No. Might it cause us to suffer? Yes. But will it prevail? No. Do you, do you, why? Because Jesus Christ will build his, what, church. And so, now here's where I just got, we got to take one more little stop. Do you guys have any concept of what actually the church is? Like, the word church is used all throughout the Bible. And, and, and I have found that, especially within Protestantism, within evangelicalism, like this idea of the church, it's just kind of coming this, this broad, nebulous thing. So like, when we talk about the church, what is it that we're talking about? I'm going to fly through this as, as best I can, just super quick. 
I'm going to say just a couple of things. Number one, the church is the assembly of all made right with God through the work of Jesus Christ for all time. What, what is the church? There, there's this broad understanding that the church is the assembly of all made right with God through the work of Jesus Christ for all time. This is what we refer to theologically as the universal church, is that all those who have been redeemed and brought in through Jesus Christ constitute the church. And so, again, we don't have to go outside of what we've been studying, just even in the book of Ephesians. Look at chapter 2 of Ephesians, starting in verse 13. But now in Christ you were who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. There are not two people of God. There is one people of God through the work of Jesus Christ we are united with the saints in the past, in the present, and in the future. This is the thing called the church. But what you have to know is this. There is one church of God, the universal church, but many manifestations of it here on earth. We call this the local church. And you cannot in your mind just simply come and read the scriptures where it's referring to Christ's relationship with the church and Christ building up his church and all of these things and, and just have this, this broad spiritual idea of the saints past, present, and future and negate the fact that when the scriptures talk about the church and God's love for his church, that he has a very specific view in mind of the church as a local entity. And so, yes, there's the church universal, but when the scriptures talk of the church and the blessings of the church and the significance of the church and the need for the church, it's also talking about local churches. Let me give you a very poor illustration of this. Walmart. Where's Walmart? Well, there's one in Escondido. There's one in San Marcos. But the Walmart headquarters is where? Rogers, Arkansas. Okay. So, so yet, <laughs> when we're talking about going to Walmart, do you think I'm saying that I'm going to the Walmart in Rogers, Arkansas? And I'm going to the corporation headquarters that were, you say, I'm going to where? Walmart. And each one of those Walmarts is, guess what? Walmart, right? Yeah, thank you, right? It's not something other than it is the manifestation of the corporate entity, which is Walmart. Thank you, you're tracking with me. And so when the scriptures talk about the church... It has both this universal understanding, but these local manifestations. And just to prove my point, let's look at a billion verses. Here we go. It starts with this, 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 15. Check this out. Paul, he planted the church in Ephesus. Timothy became the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And so he writes to Timothy, who's the pastor of the church in Ephesus, and he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the universal church, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Is that what the text says? No. It says, 
that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. What is the household of God that he's referring to, of which Timothy is a part of? The church in Ephesus. He says, so I'm writing to you because you're the pastor of this church, and I want this church to understand how it's to live as a household of God in the place where God has established it. And so then you have passages like 1 Corinthians 16.9, where look at what Paul, how he views the church. The churches of Asia send you their greeting, Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their what? House. Now, by the way, I'm just going to go on a little rant here just for a brief second. Um, people talk about house churches, and, you know, like that was the biblical model is that we should have house churches, and I have no problem with the idea of a house church, but let's be really clear on something. Um, they did not have the ability to meet in buildings back then because the buildings didn't exist, so the only places where they could meet were houses. Okay, there we go. So, Paul, a prisoner, and this is a Philemon for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the what? Church in your house. And so what is he saying? He says, listen, there are these churches in different locations. They are the manifestation of the universal church. 1 Corinthians, Paul, called by the will of God to the apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in what? Corinth. He's referring to the church of God, but it's where? In heaven? Where's the church? In Corinth. So why, we could go on. I got more, but I'm going to cut. Here's the deal. When we think about the church, there is one church of God, but there are many local manifestations of it. These passages show us that in the eyes of God, when a passage of Scripture talks about the church, you cannot separate the local church from the universal church. I'll just give you one more for free. 1 Thessalonians 1.1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So why do I show you all of this? Is because I want us to see that when the Bible talks about the church, we don't want to just think about this ethereal spiritual entity that exists only in heaven. In the eyes of God and in the writers of the New Testament, the church was constituted on earth in local churches. But here's something you have to know. What makes up a church? How do, I, <clears throat> how do I know what a church is? Is it just the assembly and the gathering of just any believers? So, you know, we're going to get together. We're going to have, you know, two or three of us are going to be gathered together. And we're like, okay, we're a church. Is that what constitutes a church? Here's what I'm going to tell you what constitutes a church according to the word of God. Multiple believers in one location with elders. That equals a local church. Multiple believers in one location with elders is what makes up a local church body. Why do I say that? Because God's word says that. Because you see in the ministry of Paul in the book of Acts, as the gospel went forth, it says that he planted churches. And when you come to Acts 14.23, I don't know that this made it in your notes, so you can write it down. It says, and when they had appointed elders for them, in some of the churches, nope, that's not what it says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. When Paul writes to Titus in Titus 1.5, Titus, who was a pastor, an elder, he says, this is why I left you in Crete, 
so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And so the local church, if it is to be a manifestation of the universal church, if Christ is the head of the universal church, God comes and says, the way that the church represents us here on earth is that I appoint those who are under shepherds, those who are under Christ, who are a part of the body but serve in the role of giving oversight to to the flock. This is what makes a local church a manifestation of the heavenly reality is when you have multiple believers in one location, but there is a leadership in place shepherding the flock of God. And we see that again. I mean, we see the application. If you're a believer in Christ, it says in Hebrews 13 that we're, we're supposed to submit to your elders as to the Lord because they are those who give watch for your soul. And so, so when we're talking about the church, this is what we're talking about But ultimately, it leads us to this. With this as our foundation, I want to go back to the text. Because not only does this passage reinforce the truth that that the church is a real thing established by God, when you actually look at this text, you discover that the church is of utmost value and importance to God. It's not just something that God established and created. This is where I want us to really begin landing the plane with, which you know when I say that, we're not even close. The church is of utmost importance, value God. Why do we say that? Where do we see that in the text? Well, look at verse 25. Verse 25 says, husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? And gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Church family, why can we say that the church is of utmost value and importance to God? It's because when you look at a husband's role in the, wi- in the life of his wife, it says that a husband is to love a wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We looked at this extensively last week, but church, let me just put it as plain and simple as I can. Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for the church. How do we know that he values the church. How do we know that the church is important to God? It's because Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for the church. He went to the cross. He entered into humanity's suffering, and he died to do something. That is to create the church by the washing of water with the word so that we would be without spot, wrinkle, or blemish, or any such thing. You and I know instinctively how much something is worth by what someone is willing to sacrifice for it. We do this all the time. We make sacrifices for the things that we value. We exchange our money for something. We exchange our time for something. We exchange our energy for something. You know what is valuable to a person by what they're willing to sacrifice for it. You know, we have a number of uh, founding fathers, 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence. Not all of them get as much 
credit maybe as they deserve, but there was one man in particular, probably one that you're not too familiar with, named Thomas Nelson Jr. Um, this is, we, we don't have a photograph, right? <laughs> they did exist back then. We have a, a somewhat decent painting of, of him. But Thomas Nelson Jr., he was from Virginia. And when the Revolutionary War began, he was very wealthy, as many of the Virginia landowners were. And he used his wealth to buy munitions for George Washington and his army. He would also lend the army money in order to buy the, the resources that it needed. But during the Battle of Yorktown, Nelson's home was located right at the heart of where the battle was going to take place. And so General Cornwallis got it in his mind that they would capture that given area where Nelson's house was, and he set up his headquarters in Thomas Nelson's home. And he did it for a couple of reasons. One, it was a mansion. It was large. And so it was to accommodate him and his officers in luxury. But the real reason why he picked Thomas Nelson's home was this. He knew that he was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. He knew that because of Nelson's relationship with George Washington, the American soldiers would be resistant to fire upon Thomas Nelson's home as the headquarters for the British Army. He knew that being in Thomas Nelson's home, that Washington and the soldiers would not want to try and decimate the land around Nelson to, to cause him pain, especially when Nelson had been such a supporter of the cause. And so guess what? Thomas Nelson knew this. And he actually went to Washington and he said, listen, uh, you know, he was out away from his home and he says, I see that your cannons aren't even pointed in the direction of my home. I know that you feel beholden to me and that you do not want to fire upon my home and destroy, destroy my land. And he said, I want you to. I want you to. I said, it's okay. That's the headquarters. You're not going to win this battle if you can't ultimately capture that area, and so I want you to. And so Washington did, and they leveled Thomas Nelson's home. It was utterly destroyed in the battle. See, what was happening there? Thomas Nelson, he loved his home. He loved the area that he had. But what was of more value to him? Freedom. And the cause of the American Revolution. And so he sacrificed his house, and he never got to see his home rebuilt. He died a year later. When we think about Jesus Christ sacrificing himself for the church, how much does he care for the church? Now, don't just think the universal church, because what did we say? Local churches are the manifestation of the greater universal church. How much does he love? How much does he value Valley Center Community Church? This local manifestation of his church. He died for it. Nelson said, you can destroy my home. Jesus said, you can destroy my body. For you, but not just you, for plural you, for the church. See, because the church isn't a person, it's a people. And too often we're quick to really just personalize everything and just make Christianity this individualistic religion. But who does it say that Christ died for in this passage? He says he died for the church, 
us collectively. And so we see the value that he places on it. Jesus would say, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his what? Life for his friend. That's what Jesus did. Valley Center Community Church exists. The church exists in the world in specific areas and locations because Jesus Christ did the work to save and to redeem it. But that's not all. It's true that you sacrifice that you and I make shows how much one values something, but do you know what else shows how much we value something, how important something is? It's the investment that you make in it, the investment that you make in it. And what we see from this text is that Jesus Christ keeps providing for and caring for the church. It's not just that he saves it. It's not just that he sacrificed himself for it to redeem it. It's that Jesus continues to provide for and to care for the church. It's an ongoing thing. He continues to invest in his church. I came across this, this story of a man by the name of Muhammad al Aran. He was the executive CEO of PIMCO, which if you know that, it is a very large financial investment institution, $2 trillion investment fund he was the head of. But he gave it all up. He stepped down because one day he received a letter from his daughter. She was 10 at the time. And in the letter was a list of the 22, this is pretty cute, sad, but cute. It was a list of the 22 milestones that he had missed in her life because of his job. And he got that, and he immediately stepped down. He said, I had a justification for every single one of the things on the list. I could point to a meeting, to a travel that I had to do. He said, but I realized something. I was investing all my time and my energy in my work, and my daughter could see it. And so he says, I gave it all up. I switched my job so that I could do something else. I could invest in her. You know how much somebody values something by the investment that they make, and do you know the kind of ongoing care and provision that God has for us in Christ? Verse 28 says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as what? Christ does the church. That's where we see his investment in us is ongoing. It's in the present tense. It's in the active voice. means it's something that Christ is continually doing in the church, providing for, caring for it. In the book of Ephesians, we've seen three ways in which we see his ongoing care and provision for the church. Number one is the fact that he gives us the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit remains with the people of God. Back in chapter 1, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. How long is the Holy Spirit with us? Until we obtain glory. He's given us his spirit. He says, when he was speaking in the gospel of John to his disciples, he says, I'm going to give you my spirit who will be with you and be your comforter, will be your counselor, who will empower you. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. He's given us his spirit. What else does he give to providing care for the church? He said in chapter 4 that he gives church leadership. Church leadership is provided for the church. Listen to what it says. This is in Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he gave, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Why? 
to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body until, do you see this? Until we all attain the unity of faith. I love this. Until we all attain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He says, I'm going to keep providing for my church. I'm giving the Holy Spirit. I'm providing leadership to my church. People, I'm giving people who are going to serve in these roles to to help the church. And, And you know what I love about this? And is this, you know, some people like, you know my issue with the local church, with the corporate church, with the church in general, is that, you know, it's got problems. It's messed up. The people aren't perfect. I'm like, find me an institution where there's any perfect people, you know? It's called heaven, okay, right? It's like, but do you know that if you're looking for a perfect church with perfect people and perfect leadership, you'll never find it. And God even knows that this side of heaven, you'll never find a church with perfect leadership and perfect people. You know how I know that? We just read it. Do you see why he gives leadership to the church? Well, let's go back. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God knows that the church on earth continues to need to grow. He anticipates that the people in the church are going to need to grow and to mature and that we don't come to Christ fully formed, fully developed, perfect in all ways. And so the church, God says, here's what I'm going to provide for you. Is I'm going I'm to give you those that will help mature you because I know you're immature. Like you don't need to be mature unless you are what? Immature. And you're like, I'm not immature. That's a sign of your immaturity. Right there. <clears throat> Is that you don't realize that you need to grow. Like who among us can say that we've obtained the leadership that stood up there? Do you hear when we did our, 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 basically our vows to you and our covenant with you for the upcoming year? It said that we are looking to continue to grow. We are looking to be held accountable like you. We know that we're not going to be perfect, but we're striving to grow. Not only does God provide the Spirit and through church leaders, but look at this last one, through church members. Through each and every one of us, God put you in his church to help others. Verse 12 of chapter 4 says that he gave the pastors and elders and all of these people to equip who? The saints. Who are the saints? They're the really holy people in the church. Like, you know, we have tears, right, in our membership. No, we don't. Like, you're all saints. We're all saints. We're all holy ones. And he says, I've given you to the church as a way of my providing and caring for the church. Paul talks about it elsewhere, the need for the body, how the ear can't say to the hand, I don't need you, or the eye to the nose. Like, no, we need one another. And he says, I've given you these things to provide and to care for my church. That's why every single member of a church is important because God established you to be in this thing called the church to provide and care for the church. And so when you refuse to engage in other believers' lives in the church, then you are outside of God's design for caring for the thing of which you were made to be a part of. Did your mind just go, right? Like, but that's the deal. That's what we have here. Church, 
I told you from the beginning, my, my aim was simple. Do you know how much God loves and cares for the church? Do you know it's important and its value? Look at how he provides and cares for the church. Look at how he sacrificed for the church. And then the last point, Jesus Christ united himself to the church for all eternity. You want to know how important the church is? He said that I have made it a part of my body. This mystery is profound, we started with. What's the mystery that's profound? Well, in the verse right before it, it talks about the two becoming one. And Paul says, yeah, that's the mystery that's profound, that's now been revealed. It's the fact that for all eternity, Christ values the church, and it's of such importance to him that he has united himself to the church. He says he is the head and we are the body, and it will be that way for eternity. We are very laissez-faire. We join organizations as long as they benefit us, and then we move away from them when they don't. We're bandwagoners. We like a team when they're doing well, and then we hop off the bandwagon when we're not. Jesus never does that with us. He's never like, woo, Valley Center Community Church, it's firing on all cylinders. I'll, be, I'll join myself with what they're doing there. And then when things aren't going well, he's like, yeah, Valley Center Community Church, don't know about what's going on there. He's like, I am with my church in every manifestation of my church until glory and beyond. The church is an earthly extension of Jesus. In fact, Paul knew this better than anybody. Don't have time to fully look at it. But in Acts chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, go back and check this out. When Paul, who at that point is Saul, he's persecuting the church, and he is confronted by Jesus on the Damascus road. Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you what? Persecuting me. Jesus was up in heaven. Who was he persecuting? He was the church. The reason why Jesus said you're persecuting me is because everything that you do to all those believers, you're doing to who? Me. The way you treat the church, you're saying and doing those things to Jesus because he connects himself to the church in such an intimate way. And so why do I show us all of this? Why do we take this, this pause and stop in the text? Number one, because it's there and it's huge. But because of this, if this is what God thinks about the church and how God treats the church, what about us? If this is how God, the creator and establisher of the church, thinks about the church, treats the church, then what about us? This is why we do so much of what we do at Valley Center Community Church is because we, as leadership in the church, believe these things to be true. We believe that the church is of utmost value and importance to Jesus Christ, and we are to take seriously the care of his bride. And so when he says appoint elders in the church, it's why we have elders. It's why we take seriously the call to shepherd the flock of God, because it's the... In order to do that, that's why we assign every member of the church to an elder in the church. Why we have our overseeing elders with each member of, of the body because we want to know who it is that we need to be caring well for because the scriptures say that we will have to give an account because of how much God cares and values the church. And if we use our leadership, our authority in ways that ultimately harm or are hurtful to the body, what we do to the members of the church 
we do to Jesus Christ. That, that, that puts you a little bit on edge as a leader in the church sometimes. It gives a caution. It's also why we have membership at Valley Center Community Church. For the very simple reason that if God cares about the church in this way, and if we're supposed to be considered a part of the church, what is the local church that you identify with? Of which then elders are responsible to shepherd you. Because you can't just say, I'm part of the universal church and that's all that really matters. Because God's word clearly says, when I'm talking about the church in the scriptures here, I'm also talking about local representations of it. Some people don't understand why. You know, why do you have a formal process where you want people to acknowledge themselves as, as committing to this church body? It's just because we want to be faithful to caring for the, for the church. And we want those who say that they're followers of Jesus Christ to be, well, listen, as I said, it is through the members of the church that God provides for and cares for his church. And so this helps to explain why we do what we do, why we value what we ultimately value. It will also explain why, husbands, you need the local church, why wives need the local church, why children need the church, why single people need the church, because this is the place in which God provides his comfort, his care, and it's the place for which Jesus Christ died. And praise the Lord that he did, because he did if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has gone and the new has come. And so let us celebrate and let us cling to the perfect plan of God, whether it pertains to husbands and wives in marriage or Christ's relationship with us, his church. Let's pray together. Lord, it really blows my mind to consider your wisdom and your plans and how perfect they are and how you literally orchestrate all of, of human history, how you would orchestrate the creation of marriage as a way of helping us to better understand the kind of God you are, the kind of care that you have, and the kind of plan that you have in looking to redeem a people and join them to yourself. And so my prayer for us, Lord, is that we would value the things that you value that we would care for the things that you care about. And that, Lord, we would look to live in the light and the truth of what your word reveals about your relationship with, with us. Because, Lord, if it wasn't for what you've done and what you came to do, we would be on our own. We would be still part of the kingdom of darkness and not part of the kingdom of light. And yet, you sacrificed yourself for us and you continue to care and provide for us. And so, Lord, we rejoice that we can be a part of the goodness and grace and kindness that you have shown. And so you deserve all the praise, all the glory, both now and forever. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.